Children's Church this time. Take your Bibles, if you would, and open up to uh, Exodus chapter 9 this morning. Uh, We're going to be looking at some sections in chapter 8, chapter 9, uh, and chapter 10. And we're just kind of kind of do a a whirlwind tour through some of the last of the 10 plagues. Uh, And then next week we'll get into Passover, which is actually the last one. Uh, But I do want to read just a few verses from chapter 9. Uh, to kind of focus our thinking this morning on the Word of God and and what uh, the text itself says. So we're going to start in Exodus chapter 19. We'll read verses 13 uh, down through um, 29. Uh, Excuse me, down through verse 30. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh. Say to him, Thus saith the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on yourself and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put you out of my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send uh, now, therefore, send get your livestock and all uh, that you have in the field into a safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh's hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses Uh, But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant in the field of of the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire uh, fire rain ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt, and there was lightning and flashing fire continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel Uh, were, was there no hail? Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned. The Lord is right and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord, the thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us from your word. We pray that you would 
caused us uh, to delight in you, that we would recognize your majesty, that we would recognize uh, your power and your protection uh, over your your people. And we just thank you that there is none like you, that there is no one uh, beside you, that you alone are God. And I pray that that would shape our worship. I pray that that would shape our our daily thinking of you and our marveling in you and our uh, being impressed uh, with your your glory and delighting in it. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Uh, When we fall in love, if you've ever fallen in love or are in love, you probably will look at that person that you're in love with. Uh, Maybe it eventually uh, he or she becomes your spouse. And you will say to yourself or you will say to others, there is no one like them. And sometimes when you're young and in love, you get sort of that that starry eyed and you can think like there's nothing wrong with them. Oh, They are just perfect. And then maybe you get married a little bit and you go like, OK, well, maybe they're not perfect. The the the, the starry eyedness kind of comes off. But you would still say of your spouse, you know, hopefully you would say of your spouse, there's there's no one like them. They they mean the world to me. Now, that's that's very subjective, right? Uh, I'm not going to look at any of you and and question uh, your uh, opinion of your spouse. But really, there's no one like my wife. So you guys have all uh, got less. No, you you see how that's subjective. You see how that's uh, an opinion that's that's that depends on who you are. You're supposed to say that about the one that you love. You're supposed to uh, feel that way, that they are unique and special to you in a way that they aren't unique and special to anyone else. But let's face it, we are all just human beings uh, at some level or another. We are generally are all the same, despite all of our differences. We're in a passage of Scripture where we begin to see that there is no one like the Lord. And God is not just saying this and God's people writing this down. Moses are not just saying this because this is a subjective thing. Oh, we love God. And so clearly he's better than all the other gods. They're saying it because it's an objective thing. Nobody is like the Lord. He is in a category all of his own. There is none that approach him or even come close to being like him in his greatness, in his majesty, in his glory, in his power. You might say, as I've said, that there is nobody like your spouse. They're the most important person in the world to you. And that is wonderful. But when we say there is no one like the Lord, we are saying he is infinitely above us. No one comes close by any objective measure. No one has near the power. None of these other things that pretend to be gods in the Egyptian world can do any of the things that the living God can do. In our day and age, none of the things that we put comfort and strength in can protect us and save us and keep us secure like God alone can do. At the end of the day, everyone, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess before the God who created all things, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because we will in that day be faced with His glory in His presence and we will acknowledge there is none like you. 
And part of the the story of the scriptures is God revealing himself so that we might look and worship and then be redeemed by him and then say, who does this? There is no one like you in your majesty. And part of the story of the ten plagues is that there is no one like the Lord God. Exodus 8.10 Uh, Tomorrow, Moses says, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is none or there is no one like the Lord, our God. Exodus 914. For this time, I will send all of my plagues on yourself, on the servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now, remember how the, the plagues started out. Remember when Moses said Uh, He goes to Pharaoh and he says, God has said, the Lord has said, let my people go. What does Pharaoh say? Who is this Lord? I don't know him. And I made the case. It's probably that he it's not that he'd never heard of him or hadn't heard of his name. It's that he didn't care and he didn't want to submit. He didn't recognize that there was no one like the Lord, that there was no other. And these plagues are continually showing that Pharaoh has no power, that Pharaoh's gods have no power, and there is no one like the Lord. This is a theme repeated a number of times in the latter half of the book of Exodus. After about uh, chapter 40 or so, it comes up quite a bit that there is no other. Isaiah 45, 21 Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel. Who told this long ago? And and here, uh, part of what Isaiah is doing is he's making a polemic against idols. And he kind of comes along and he says, Who among you idols can tell the future? Guess what? God declares the end from the beginning. And then God says, Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none beside me. You can see it. Isaiah 45, 22, Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things of old things like the Exodus from the time of writing of Isaiah. Remember these for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And this was repeated a number of times in the book of Exodus. And we need to hear that today. There is no one like God. Why do you worship God? Why do you bend your knee before him? Why do you sing to him? Is it because you want to get things from him? Or is it because you recognize there is no one like him? There's no one who saves like he saves. There's no one who protects his children like he protects his children. There is no one like him in his infinite perfection, in the glory and majesty of his holiness. And yet we think we can stand as equals with God. That we can dictate terms to him when we pray. That we can make bargains with him. God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. It's exactly what Pharaoh learns you can't do. And you see in Exodus 9.17, Moses says, You're still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. 
God is showing all of this glory. He is, he is in this process of humbling Pharaoh. And, and he's bringing these plagues. And he's like, you're still not getting it. We are seven plagues into it at this point. We're going to highlight the plagues. And I want to move through them in a rather rapid pace this morning. Uh, but plague number four. So we're going to flip back uh, to Exodus chapter 8. Uh, plague number four, starting in verse 20, is a plague of Flies, And if you'll remember, I said last time we dealt with the plagues back in July, uh, the plagues often uh, are an attack against foreign gods. They often challenge the status of Pharaoh, who was considered the son of God. They often establish the order of creation that Egyptians believed the Pharaoh was in control of. So they, they thought that Pharaoh controlled everything that goes on in the land of Egypt. And why is it peaceful in Egypt? Why is it calm? Who keeps all the order? Well, that's Pharaoh. And he's the son of, of Ra, the son of God. They called the, this concept Ma'at. And so here's Pharaoh and he's powerless as God undoes all the creation. And it kind of goes crazy, right? It's under the hand of God, obviously, But the point of these plagues is it's not under the hand of Pharaoh. And then it also attacks the pantheon of gods. And one of the gods the flies might actually attack. Here are these flies and the god uh, that was symbolized by a beetle. Uh, I don't know how you pronounce this. I guess it's called Kepherer. He signified beetles or scarabs. So a lot of these uh, gods in the pantheon were associated with with different elements of creation. That's pretty much true of idolatry wherever you find it. Uh, But here in the Egyptian world, you can see how God undoing part of an aspect of creation would be a sign to the people in Egypt, where's our God? Why isn't he taking care of this? Why is Yahweh, the Lord of the Israelites, so much more powerful? It should have brought fear that they that they would reject and flee from their gods, but they didn't. So this is the the plague of the flies going on into the next slide. Uh, We just want to walk through this here. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and you can see that in verses 20 and and 21. And this is one of the ones uh, three of the, the times he goes. He's told to rise up early in the morning and he meets Pharaoh down at the water. Exodus 8:20. Then he says in 21, if you will not let them go, behold, I will send swarms of flies uh, on you and your servants and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians filled with swarms of flies. Also, the ground on which they stand. It's interesting that God, this is the first plague that God is going to make very, very clear that he is protecting Israel in the midst of the plagues. So verses 21 and 2. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. And they shall know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. So all of this is not only to show that Egypt, hey, these are my people and I'm their God. It's assurance to Israel. Wow. God really is the Lord of all of the earth. I don't have to fear these Egyptian gods because my God is stronger. He is the living and true God. And these other gods are nothing more uh, than either demonic or just uh, pretending. Uh, Pretenders. So you can imagine uh, if you wanted to put this in a visual imagery, imagine 
uh, if over here on this side of the church, it was the land of Goshen. And over here on this side of the church, uh, it was the land of the Egyptians. And all of you on this side uh, are in the wrong land today uh, because you will get all the flies over here and it'll just be swarming. And then over here, it, it will be normal. It will be calm. There will be no flies um, at least beyond maybe what's normal, but you won't be running around uh, under all these bug bites. When we were on vacation uh, in, in, at my parents in Delaware, I sat out on the front porch one night uh, and I forgot to light the citronelle candle and, and all these little mosquitoes started biting me. I'd been in Tennessee and no, no mosquitoes bit me there, even though the kids got bit. And then I go to Delaware and there must be something different that they like in Delaware. But can you imagine being swarmed with flies and, and not just the nice little ones. You ever, have you ever been at the pool where you get the big horse flies that land on you and they bite you and they hurt worse than mosquitoes? I mean, imagine the swarms of them. And here the Egyptians are looking to their gods. Where, where are they? Why isn't Pharaoh controlling this? And here's the Lord showing that he is God. Moses or Guz returned to Pharaoh. Pharaoh calls Moses in, in verse 25. Pharaoh tries to negotiate. So he says, go sacrifice uh, in, in, the, in the God to your land. But Moses said it would not be right for us to do so. So the, the command is you've got to let my people go so that we can go three days away and sacrifice. And of course, we know they're not coming back. And so Pharaoh says, look, look, OK, you want to sacrifice to your God. That is fine. I will allow that. Go somewhere in the land of Egypt and sacrifice. And, and Moses says, no, we can't do that. And there's two reasons he gives. One, he says in verse 26, uh, the offerings that we sacrifice to the Lord our God will be an abomination to the Egyptians and they're going to stone us. So there's kind of a, a practical reason there for Pharaoh. Hey, your people will kill us. It will be chaos. But then there's the more important reason uh, and he's going along. He says, we must go, verse 27, three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So there's the practical reason like, hey, this just makes sense, Pharaoh. This isn't ridiculous because your people would kill us if we did this. But there's the more uh, important and ultimate reason we have to obey God. We can't obey God halfway. You remember sometimes in the scriptures, some of the heroes of the faith do that. Saul is a good example of that. He'll follow part of the commands of the Lord. But, for example, when he's told to destroy uh, the Amorites, he keeps the, the um, cows and the calves and the, the livestock for himself. So he doesn't destroy everything as he's told. When it comes to obeying the Lord, the Lord doesn't want us to obey halfway. And then the Pharaoh says, I will let you go sacrifice to your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. This is verse 28. Plead for me. Again, Moses's response has been, we must do what the Lord has tell, told us. Pharaoh is trying to negotiate with God. He's trying to have his cake and eat it too. get rid of these flies. I'll let you have a little, but I don't want to lose my power. I don't want to lose my slaves. I really don't want you to go. And then like many unbelievers often do, he just says, okay, plead for me, pray for me. 
Now, he's not saying this out of repentance and he's not saying this out of a desire to know the Lord. He's saying this out of selfishness. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I'll encounter someone who doesn't know the Lord and they will they will assume that because I'm a pastor, well, I must be closer to the Lord. And so they'll say, hey, uh, would you pray for me? Well, hey, why, would you like to know the Lord Jesus Christ? You can pray. No, no, that's fine. Whatever. But just if you would pray for me, that would be good. It's not out of a sincere heart. It's not out of a, a desire to know the Lord. It's not out of someone saying, I know that God is like no other and I just need to cry out to him. It's almost like a magic trick that the way people think of it. Well, if you believe that works, why don't you just say a good word for me? And, and hopefully maybe it, it, it couldn't hurt, right? This is what Pharaoh is acting like. Pharaoh, Moses does pray, and of course, Pharaoh changes his mind. Verse 32, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. As we keep moving, we have the plague against the livestock. So there's some possible gods that this attacks. Uh, you can see the god there, Hathor, has kind of a bullhorn on him. And the god Apis is also uh, signified as, as a bull, so that would be livestock. Pharaoh's power in the ancient world was often linked to the bull. You think of how bulls symbolize strength and courage and and uh, the fighting spirit, uh, just powerful uh, beasts. And, and so there was often a, a symbolic power. But here again, God is saying, I am more powerful than these gods. So uh, chapter nine, God strikes all the livestock. He strikes all kinds of livestock. And you can see that in chapter nine. Uh, verses two through five. What I do want you to notice here that when it says, um, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall on a very, a very severe plague upon the livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds and the flocks. But the Lord made a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of the Egyptians so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. That as this plague comes along, um, there is all types of livestock of the Egyptians is is plagued by this plague. Not all of it dies because you'll see a little bit later on. For example, when the hail hits, they still have some livestock they're told to get out. So when it says about all the livestock will be struck down, it means all kinds uh, of livestock. And you can see that in verse six. All of the livestock of the Egyptians died. It, it means all kinds of the livestock. It's speaking about the scope of this, not that literally every number of a, of the livestock actually died. So you don't have to think, well, gee, Scripture's contradicting itself, or gee, where did the livestock come from later on uh, when they get the hail? It's a perfectly natural uh, way of, of speaking. But notice here again, and, and this is drawn out for us, what does God do for his people? He protects his people. I mean, can, can you imagine what kind of testimony uh, this is to the Egyptians? I mean, they are just getting pummeled. And here are the people that worship the true and living God and nothing is touching them. And I'm sure word spread. Hey, there's this guy, Moses. He went before the Pharaoh. He said these plagues were, would come. I'm sure it spread outside of the court. People knew what was going on. And I'm sure if they even if they didn't repent, it at least made them think, why is their God different? 
what is going on? And you'll see even with the, the hail, some of them then did start to fear the Lord. They did start to say, whoa, I better take this word from God seriously. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean that all of them repented, although maybe a few did, uh, maybe some did. But it seems like some of them are catching on even when Pharaoh isn't. We're going to keep moving. Like I said, uh, I want to just highlight these plagues. Then you have the plague of boils. Uh, and so uh, a couple different gods that this could attack or this could uh, undo their power. You have the god Ra, who was considered to dissolve evils and dispel ailments, a physician who heals, rescuing whom he desires. He makes long life and shortens it. Uh, there was a revered physician, uh, Imohatep, who lived from about two, two, 2650 B.C. to about uh, 2600 B.C. He wasn't worshipped until much later. Uh, but, you know, you can see here in this passage the mag- magicians or the physicians uh, who probably many of them used magic or magical type things to heal. They're powerless. You have Sekhmet, the bringer of disease, who could pure, cure plagues and he can do nothing about boils. You have Thoth, who was the god of moral and divine law, and it was thought that he granted medical ability. So you can just see some of the pictures uh, there of what those gods look like. And I just put the pictures up there so that you can remind yourself. These were real things. Like these people really believed that these things existed and they had power and abilities and they would look to them. We might not have gods that we draw on our walls or little household gods. But there are a lot of things in our world today that people look at and put their trust in and they think will deliver them. They think will heal them. They think can do something and they won't trust God. Moving right along, uh, Moses uh, in chapter nine, verse eight, he takes this handful of soot from a kiln as God tells him to. He throws it in the air in the sight of uh, Pharaoh. It becomes a fine dust over the land and boils break out. Uh, what I love here is look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter nine. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. Uh, For the boils came upon the magicians and all of the Egyptians and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken uh, to Moses. How many of you just kind of pull? How many of you ever had chicken pox as a kid? I know I know now some of you young kids, that's like a thing of the past because we vaccinate for it. But do you remember how much those things itched? You remember like scratching yourself and you would. Maybe take these baths of like, uh, I think we put Epsom salt or you put chamomile lotion on her. Anything you could do to just get rid of the itching. And those were typically small. Uh, I got chicken pox when I was a teenager. And they say you get them a little worse when you're, when you're older. So I remember them itching really, really bad. But can you imagine like big quarter-sized boils or even bigger? And, and just here are these magicians. And they're, they're probably just standing there. They're like scratching themselves and and maybe like like Job wanted to do when he was afflicted, take that pot shard and you just got to kind of scratch with anything sharp. I mean, I know it sounds disgusting, but but imagine just how tremendously painful these boils are. And here are these magicians and they think they have this power and they think they can do these things and they have these incantations and they can do nothing to get rid of the boils. And it's so bad they can't even stand before Moses. 
They can't look him in the eye. They can't stand up there anymore and say, well, yeah, okay, your God isn't there that great. They're they're shrinking away because they just got to get out of there to scratch themselves and itch themselves. It had to be embarrassing. Where are your gods, O magicians? We know where the living and true God is. This is why we're learning in this passage. There is no one like God. Moving along to the hail. Let me read Isaiah 96 quick, verses 4 and 5. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Or excuse me, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. And then Exodus 9, 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen as the Lord had spoken. Then we have hail. And there was the sky god, uh, I think you say it, Nut or maybe Newt. Uh, she was actually a female. There was Tefnut, Moisture. Horus was a sky god. You had Seth, the god of wind and rains. And so now all of a sudden you have all this uh, storm hail pouring out of heaven lightning coming down, some kind of fire in the clouds, uh, perhaps more of a poetic description of how you see the lightning flash up. But but maybe with the hail, maybe there was some other things that came down. Uh, it, it's quite very possible that we're to take this uh, rather literally. But the point is now the sky is in chaos and it's raining down destruction on the land. Uh, it's not unheard of to have hail big enough that it can kill people. I actually looked this up online. There have been some hailstorms in history that, that we know of uh, that that um, there was one uh, about 16 years ago in China that I think 10 people died from and a number of people were injured. Uh, there was one in Germany in 1984 where some people died from and I think it was like 400 people were injured. So all it would take is just some slightly bigger hail and uh, you can imagine how hard uh, this would be. Uh, there is a report uh, during the um, Hundred Year Wars in the 1300s, the religious wars. There is a report of a hailstorm, a freak hailstorm that came down uh, and killed, like, I think it was a thousand men uh, on the battlefield. So this has happened before uh, in history. But this is God in control of all of these things causing it. So. Uh, again, verse 13 of chapter 9, Moses gets up early in the morning. He presents himself to Pharaoh and says, uh, you're to let my people go. But then what I want you to notice is I want you to notice these verses in 14 through 18. And I want you to see a couple key things because I really think this is where the narrative centers on as we look at these plagues. This is what they were supposed to learn. Verse 14 For this time I will send plagues on yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. God is sending all of these plagues so that Pharaoh would know that there is no one like God. What are we today in the 21st century to learn from these plagues? We are to see that we worship the same God and there is nobody like him. He has no rivals and nothing that you and I can make in our day and age. Nothing that we can even come to understand through science and science rightly used is a good thing. But none of it will ever rival to the knowledge 
and power and majesty and glory of God. We laugh at the people at the Tower of Babel thinking they could build a tower to get to God. But how many people in our day and age use other things, whether it's religion, whether it's science or human knowledge or philosophy, how many people use man-made things to think that they can get to God? Or they think that we don't need God anymore because we are smart now. We are intelligent. We can look at creation and see that this evolved from nothing, we're told. We don't need God is the mantra of our day. That's where we get the language of God is dead. Not that people really believe that God was once alive and died when they say that. But it's that the idea of God is no longer needed. It's a dead concept. We might as well throw it into the trash heap of history where there was all those stupid yokels that didn't understand that hail comes from the clouds and how it's made in heaven. And they thought it was God. How silly of that. Brothers and sisters, God made the heavens and the earth. He created all things, whether immediately or or immediately, whether he did it directly by the word of his power or like when he fashioned Adam and Eve, he formed them out of the dust of the earth and out of the rib. And God is in control over all heaven and all earth. And there is none like him. Notice in verse 15, Pharaoh could have been struck down already. For by now I could have put you out of my hand. In other words, why does God here drag this into seven plagues? God could have, just metaphorically speaking, snapped his finger. Pharaoh would be dead. All the Egyptians he could have killed or had a plague come on immediately if he would have wanted to. And that would have been the end of it. There would have been no one standing there saying, hey, you Israelites, you can't leave. Why didn't God just do it immediately? Like we look at that and we say, well, that would be more effective. Right? That, that, that gets right to the point. Why drag it out? The temptation is to think, well, you know, God was giving Pharaoh a chance to repent. But that's not where the focus of the text is. God was giving the Egyptians the opportunity to see his power. He was spreading his glory through all the earth. You know, after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, when they finally get to uh, Canaan, do you remember what Rahab said? Rahab said they knew about what God did in Egypt 40 years ago. And this is a day and age in a day and age before there was newspapers, before things were written down, before you could Google on the Internet. Hey, what happened 40 years ago in Egypt? Oh, plagues. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. I mean, imagine the, the, the majesty of God going out into the earth as people are hearing this and they're remembering it 40 years later. God raises up this Pharaoh who's going to spend his life rebelling against God so that God can hold him in his hand and say, I'm going to show the world that I even hold you, you rebellious one. And I can bring these plagues to show my power and you can't resist my hand. And I could have just 
and snuffed you out of my hand and that would have been the end of it. The irony is this very rebellion that Pharaoh is doing. He's being allowed to do it because God is upholding Pharaoh's life so that God can show his power. Even the most rebellious people against God will at the end of the day in some way display the glory of God. That person that thinks, I hate God, I'm rebelling against Him, I despise the idea of God, I don't think He is existing, I do everything with every ounce of my will and ability to resist God and see that He is destroyed and maligned and I attack Him with my words and prove that He doesn't exist and all of these things... And God looks down from heaven at that person and laughs at their rebellion. Because at the very moment that they are rebelling, He is allowing them to draw breath. In Him they live and move and have their being, even as they are rebelling. And the day of judgment will come. And God In a sobering, and and I don't mean to make light of this, the day of judgment will come. And even as that unbeliever is being judged, God will be getting glory. Not in a God is not a, a mean and nasty and sadistic kind of way as he judges. But there is this irony. They did everything in their power to resist the working of God. And they still ended up serving the plan and purpose of God. God still showed his glory and his might. Now, that's a warning to us, because wouldn't you much rather be the person that God shows his glory and might in by saving you and redeeming you? And you've repented and you have a relationship with him? Yeah, absolutely. But this is how great God is. You can't get outside of his plan You can't say, look, God thinks he's all that because he wants all this glory. I'm going to be over here not giving him glory. You may think you're not giving him glory. Think of how the Pharisees take Jesus and they partner with Judas and they partner with the Romans to kill Jesus. We're going to thwart this would-be Messiah. And they end up being the very means by which the Messiah saves the world. They think they're attacking and destroying Jesus. And they're actually, at the end of the day, bringing glory to Christ. Because Christ's glory is manifest on the cross. I'm not saying in their hearts they're bringing glory. I'm saying they're bringing glory despite what they want. So they're not going to be in You know, when we sin, we're not excused from our sin. Pharaoh doesn't get to go before God and say, God, you know, hey, I know it's the day of judgment and I know you're condemning people, but, you know, it all worked out good in the end. So so maybe you can overlook that. No, he's still accountable for his actions. But the point is that rebellion is ultimately futile. Because God is like no other. You can't stop the hand of God. You can't resist him. You can't uh, thwart him. We could go into passages in Romans. Romans chapter 9 actually quotes this verse as well. You'll see later on here how people respond. There are a few that respond 
to the word of God. Very quickly, I want to just highlight the last two plagues this morning. The plague of locusts. So you have the god of grain, Nepri. You have uh, Rene Nutet, I guess is how you say it, the mother of the harvest. You have Senehem. Uh, again, God attacking what they hold dear, what they need for their food, what they're looking for to think establishes them. I mean, famines in the ancient world were devastating. People died from them. And God is saying, you need to trust me. I'm in control of these things. And so the locusts come and destroy the grain. You'll see a growing obstinance in Pharaoh as you read through uh, chapter 10. He again tries to bargain with God. Uh, On one occasion in chapter 10, Moses is told as he goes before Pharaoh to, to tell this in the hearing of his son and his grandson. So it's not just about Pharaoh rebelling anymore. It's so that other people would learn and not act in this rebellion. Pharaoh wants to compromise in the Lord. He's willing to let the men go and sacrifice, verses 7 through 11. Uh, And, of course, he wants them to keep their herds and their sons and daughters so that they'll come back. And Moses says, no, we have to go with everybody, young and old, and our flocks. We have to follow the word of God. Pharaoh then will beg again for relief. The last plague is the plague of darkness. This is, I think, the most obvious one that attacks an ancient god. Ra was the god of the sun. Uh, Pharaoh was the son of Ra, had a close, intimate connection with Ra. I think it's probably intentional that this plague is, is the second to the last plague. The darkness comes over the land. It says, a, uh, stretch out your hand towards the heavens that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Uh, I don't know how God did this. If, if it was, uh, he could have used normal means, natural means like an eclipse or super dark clouds, or he could have done it completely by supernatural ways we don't understand. But the point is he did it. And, and this wasn't just like, you know how you go out on, sometimes at night and, and even when the moon's not out, you can, you can see a little bit around you, the stars, maybe light some things up or whatever. This is like going into your basement closet where there's no windows and there's no lights and you turn off the light and like you can't see your hand in front of you. And this is hard for us to imagine, right? Because, you know, even when it's dark out, we have street lights, you have ambient light from in town. Uh, you know, you have some light maybe shining out of the window of your house. You go and you get a flashlight. You light a candle when the power goes out. I mean, this was dark. And if you were ever a little kid afraid of the dark, imagine being in this kind of dark even as an adult. The point is God is over all things. I want to make a couple quick applications this morning. First, I want to say come and see that the Lord is like no other. Like, like, Do you recognize this in your life? God isn't like anybody else. And in our day and age, the worst thing that we do is we try to bring God down to our level. Now, the great thing about our God is he makes himself known and he reveals himself. And he has manifested himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we could know him. But don't minimize and dumb down and and take away from his power and his majesty and his glory. Only in God and in glorifying his name can we find ultimate satisfaction. 
These people were looking for gods and other gods to satisfy them. It's interesting that, that the god Apis was a masculine god of sexual prowess. We may not have that God in our day and age, but how many people worship sex? Even even in marriage, sometimes people make sex the most important thing and lose sight of the covenant relationship. Hathor was a God associated with glamour. That kind of describes a lot going on in our culture. Other gods were gods of prosperity, gods of security, gods of protection, All of these things, we may not have the names of the gods, but we still look to things outside of God for peace, for comfort, for security. These things only come from God. Pharaoh had, as I mentioned earlier, that idea of the ma'at, who he controlled things. How many of us, when our life is going well, we think we're the ones that have it all together? And then when things start getting chaotic, maybe God is teaching you that you're not in control, that you have to trust him. Just like Sarah shared in her wonderful testimony, like she had to learn to just trust God when she was tired. That's basic. But, you know, I learned the same thing at camp, so I'm not knocking you. Okay, Uh, I learned that lesson the hard way as well. We often don't know what we find security in until God takes it away. I'm going to share a humorous story. And I didn't ask my wife for permission to share this. So this might not be good, but it, it is a good story. So we were on vacation and we were we were tubing uh, down a little creek. And Morgan and I got ahead of AJ and I, uh, AJ and Samantha on these tubes. And all of a sudden I look back and AJ had bought this really cool hat that she's been wearing. She bought it about a month ago. It's her favorite hat. And I, I hear her in the tube and she's screaming, my hat! It's like over on the side of the, the, the stream. And she starts paddling, paddling over towards it like, like crazy, like mad paddling and trying to pull Samantha. Anyways, she gets her hat. Here she had gone through, we'd just gone through a section of rapids, and, and we had, had she, her hat had fallen off. And she, she told me what happened, because like I said, we were about 25 yards ahead of her. And all that went through her head, she said, okay, I lost the hat. I had this moment of panic. And then she said, I had to tell myself, okay, it's just a hat. It's just a hat. I can buy another one. It's not that big a deal. And, and she had just kind of like made peace. Like, okay, God, if you want me to lose the hat, you obviously wanted me to lose the hat. And after she came out of the rapids, and we were downstream a little bit. Like, you, you, this hat was gone. And, and it was like a gray hat. It wasn't like an orange hat that you're going to see it or red. It was a gray hat. It, and, and the water was gray and the rocks were gray. And you weren't going to find, You might as well have had a camouflage hat. And then God, in his graciousness, let the hat wash up and she saw it. Now, that's kind of a silly story. She said to me later on, what would you do if it was one of your books? And I said, well, I wouldn't have my books in, in the creek, first off. Um, <laughs> But, but, you know, touche, you know, I, I sometimes think my books are, are a super valuable possession and, and, uh, and, and I'm protective of them. But we often don't know what we find comfort and security in and, and kind of make idols. And I'm not saying she made that hat an idol by no means, but we often don't know what we're making more important than God until God takes it away. 
reminds us that there is none like him. If he's doing that in your life, be quick to learn the lesson. Be quick to say, God, there is nobody like you. Many of us today have a weak view of God. And I say us, I mean us as evangelical Christians. We have this dwindling view of God. We lose sight of his wonder. We lose sight of the fact that there is no one like him. We, we don't understand the, the, the holy, holy, holy that as Isaiah says as he's in the presence of the Lord. We, we can't fathom Moses standing on the mountain as we read today and only being able to see the back of God because the full onslaught of God's glory would eradicate us. We want a safe God. A domesticated God who does what we want when we want it. I'll pray to him, he'll give me something. I go to church, we kind of have this bargain going. You're not worshiping God. You're not bending the knee in submission when you treat God as one you can negotiate with. God is like no other. He's a God of majesty, but he's a God who is saved and protected his children and continues to do so in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us from your word, that we would marvel at who you are, that we would marvel at your greatness, at your power, at your majesty, that we would thank you and praise you. I do pray that that we would be a people who glorify you and that you would get glory from us, not because we add to your glory, but because we are giving to you what you deserve, praise and worship. I pray that as a church body, we would be a people who hold you in high regard, who delight in telling others and making it known both in our midst and outside of our four walls that there is no one like God. Nobody compares to who you are and no one ever will. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.